You're listening to The Human Factor from Inc. Magazine. I'm Eric Schoenberg, the CEO of Inc. and Fast Company. One of the hardest jobs of a leader or an entrepreneur is to persuade people to change. People always resist. They don't like leaving their comfort zones. They get scared. They take it personally. Change is hard, let's face it. And so to bring people along, you emphasize the benefits of the new thing you want them to embrace. You incentivize, you proselytize and advertise and re-incentivize. And today's guest, David Schoenthal, argues that you'll still probably fail. David is professor of innovation and entrepreneurship at the Kellogg School at Northwestern, a health tech VC, design thinking expert and entrepreneur himself. His soon to be released book, The Human Element, written with Lauren Nordgren, is about why we get change wrong, in particular, the key overlooked reasons that people resist change and how to overcome those obstacles. We'll cover David's research in the next half hour, as well as the state of the entrepreneurial ecosystem in Chicago, in which David is deeply engaged. This is going to be fun. Welcome, David Chungthal. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Well, David, it's great to have you. Now, where are you calling in from? Uh, quite literally, I'm calling in from my attic, but I live just north of Chicago, uh, just north of, of Evanston, Illinois, where Northwestern is, so just outside of the city. Ah, well, that is a beautiful part of the world. David, by way of introduction, I'd, I'd like to talk about your career arc. So we've already established that you're a professor at Kellogg, um, but you also spent a, a decade at IDEO, the the human-centric design firm that's associated with the creation of the computer mouse uh, and D-School mm -hmm. at Stanford. Um, you're an operating partner in a health tech VC firm in Chicago, and you're involved in a couple um, tech-focused incubators in Chicago, one at Northwestern and one in downtown Chicago. I Tie those all together for me. What is it that led you to leave IDEO and become you know, an educator and a, and a mentor? Yeah. Uh, well, it's a, it's an interesting question. The, the short answer is they all grew up together. So I started my career, the most relevant part of my career to this conversation is an entrepreneur working in San Diego in the healthcare community, building healthcare startups. And then for family reasons, my wife and I are both from the Midwest. We decided to move back to Chicago when we were about to begin our family and had to do a little bit of reinvention. And one of the things I've always enjoyed doing is mentoring startups, working with early stage companies and helping them grow. And a couple of great ways to do that materialized in Chicago. One was by joining the Chicago studio of IDEO, helping them specifically focus on working with emerging businesses. So how IDEO might do more with startups. And then second, I started teaching as an adjunct at Northwestern in the undergraduate program in the College of Arts and Sciences, teaching an entrepreneurship class uh, just for one semester, and that wound up going really well in another semester, and then eventually that led to my current role at Kellogg. And I've always felt that to be a good educator in entrepreneurship, uh, you know, there's not a whole lot of theoretical entrepreneurship in the world. There's certainly theory that supports entrepreneurial practices, but to really stay relevant in what you're teaching, you've got to stay relevant in industry. So maintaining a role in venture funds, both at Seven Wire Ventures, which is a healthcare fund, and Pritzker Group Venture Capital, which is a consumer and enterprise fo focus fund, I think helps keep me uh, aware and connected to what's going on in the market, which hopefully makes me a better educator. Great. Okay, thanks. Well, let's talk about your book, The, the Human Element. Um, 
your thesis is that people too often focus on the benefits of an idea when they're trying to sell it. The, the benefits are, are what you call fuel, and they pay too mm -hmm. little attention to the reasons people resist change, the things you call friction. Um, I think maybe the best way to describe how this works is to pull an example of a company in which company overcame uh, resistance to change by focusing on those friction points. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a great way to explain it. Maybe the, the, the best example I can give you right now is a company that we invested in is an early stage business that makes custom furniture, specifically makes custom sofas for young urban uh, dwelling millennials and Gen Z who are interested in buying their first adult furniture for their new apartment or their new condo. And the value proposition of this business is that they create custom sofas and customer custom furniture at 75% less than you would ordinarily find at a typical custom furniture retailer. And moreover, they can deliver that custom piece to your home in 10 weeks, which is a phenomenal feat of logistics and supply chain. And this business has a ton of interest from exactly the target market that they're going after. They've got thousands of visitors to their website every day, hundreds of visitors to their retail location, many of whom spend hours on the website or hours in the store designing these custom pieces of furniture, customizing every detail from the arms to the legs to the fabric. And after investing a whole bunch of their time and energy into creating this perfect piece, when it comes time to click the buy button or to sign the contract in the store, something kind of interesting happens, which is nothing at all. They abandon their cart at the last moment, or they walk out of the retail store and say, I need to think about it, and then never come back. And to myself and Lauren, who is uh, my co-author and a behavioral psychologist, this is the perfect encapsulation of where we think friction theory shows up. What is it about ideas that obviously have a ton of magnetism and pull to attract people to the idea in the first place, but more importantly, what stops them from moving ahead with it? And as it turns out in this particular case, through a bunch of research that we did with their customers, the biggest culprit of why they decided to walk away or abandon their cart had nothing to do with price, had nothing to do with features and benefits, it had nothing to do with delivery or promotion. It had everything to do with figuring out what they were going to do with their existing sofa. Until they figured out what they were going to do to get rid of the existing piece in their home, they could not unlock the chamber of their brain that allowed them to contemplate buying this new thing. Were they going to have to lug it downstairs themselves? Could they leave it in the alley? Would they have to hire somebody to cart it away? And this was just so much of an effortful thing for them to contemplate. They just thought it was easier to walk away from the whole experience. And obviously, once the company got wind of this, they quickly started to implement solutions like automatic removal of your existing sofa as part of the delivery process and donating it to a charity, which of course increased conversion. But until they figured out what this source of friction was that was standing in the way, they were continued, they continued to be stymied by what they thought the problem was to customer conversion. Perfect example. So why is it, I, I, I take it that this company for a long time focused on how do we make the product more um, attractive or uh, how do we make the website easier to use or how, in trying to figure out why people abandon their carts so often? Why is it that people focus first on what you call the fuel rather than on the friction? Yeah, um, I, it's a good question. I think there's two explanations for it. 
One, as entrepreneurs or innovators, we tend to be very focused on the thing we're building and believe that that is the reason people either do or do not adopt a, a certain technology or a new solution. It's kind of similar to when you drive on the freeway and you see somebody swerving in and out of lanes and driving a little bit like a maniac. Because we look at the world through our own lens and through the center of our own experience, we are, our first instinct is, well, that person's a jerk or that person's inebriated. And we don't stop to consider, you know, maybe that person is an EMT on their way to an emergency or they've got, uh, they really desperately need a bathroom. We tend to fixate on our lens is the way that we mm. look at the world. And friction theory insists that we take a step back from the myopic lens of the product or service and consider all of the externalities involved. The second reason is that we often confuse the products and services we're selling with the progress that our customers are trying to make. And those two are not the same things. So if this company had content, can, uh, continued to view itself as a furniture manufacturer, obviously removal of the existing sofa and making it easier to say uh, for somebody to say yes might not have been in their sphere of consideration because that's not the classic type of service you would offer as a furniture manufacturer. But if you consider yourself to be in the furniture transition business or the upgrading your home furnishings business, removals is clearly part of that overall progress. And so one of the things that we advocate for in this book is to have less of a product orientation and much more of a progress orientation. Mm, mm, that's really interesting. The, uh, the classic question of what business are we really in? That's as a exactly. sort of classic business question. Is that why it's so hard for companies to identify the frictions that are holding them back? I think that is a big part of it is just their orientation away from product to progress or, or what business they're in. The other is that a lot of these things are a little tricky to spot if you're not looking for them. Uh, we talk about four frictions in this book in particular. One is the friction of effort, how much physical, mental, economic exertion is required to adopt the change. That tends to be a little easier to spot. Uh, the, the second we talk about is inertia, which is the stickiness of the status quo. And oftentimes as entrepreneurs or innovators, we radically underestimate the, the pull of the status mm. quo, even though we know there's a better way for somebody to do something. If they've designed a bunch of workarounds and integrated into them, integrated those workarounds into their life, it's really difficult for them to give up those workarounds in service of what might be a better option. The third, which is probably the trickiest to spot, is emotional friction. The inadvertent anxiety we may cause in somebody for adopting some, something new or the fear they have about maybe not knowing how to use it. It's difficult because people don't often wear their emotions on their sleeves. What we tend to see are the symptoms of emotional friction, but without understanding the underlying cause. And then the fourth is reactance, which is people's natural aversion to being changed by others. And I think we see examples of that every day in the newspaper, where the more people feel like change is being imposed upon them, the stronger they resist. And so in answer to your question, I think we don't pay attention to these things, mostly because we're not looking for them. But even when we look for them, sometimes there's a bit of nuance and detail to spotting them. The emotion, the emotional friction is the one that you said was maybe the hardest to spot. Um, can you give me an example of a, a, where a company uncovered uh, emotional friction and a change that they were trying to implement? Sure. Um, so there's a company based out of, originally based out of Chicago called Livongo, which is a 
uh, now part of Teladoc, but is a diabetes management service, specifically mm -hmm. specifically helping people manage the chronic condition of diabetes, which for millions of Americans is a day-to-day -day challenge. One of the things that, that Lavongo called out very appropriately, very early in their work was that diabetes isn't just a functional disease. It's not something where when you manage your blood sugar, that's all there is to it. And in fact, when you see commercials about diabetes management on TV, it's all about keeping your HbA1c in check or keeping your blood sugar levels in check. It tends to focus very much on the functional element of the disease. Mm -hmm. But diabetes, as well as a variety of other chronic diseases, are equally social and emotional conditions. Think about all the frustration that comes along with having to manage a disease like diabetes. Think about how uh, there are certain goals you have in your life that are difficult for you to achieve. And you don't necessarily connect going and walking a 10K with your HbA1c. So, so many companies speak to people in terms of functional elements of the disease instead of speaking to them about the social and emotional progress they can make. And one of the things that Lavongo got right really early was recognizing that in order to be able to engage people in the conversation they wanted to have about treating the entire person and not just the functional elements of the disease, they made conscious decisions from the very mundane about like, how do you refer to somebody who has diabetes? Do you call them a diabetic? Do you name them what their disease is? Like, you don't want the, the founder of Lavongo Glenn Tullman will tell you, you don't call somebody with cancer a cancer. You say that's a person living with cancer or managing cancer. But yet with diabetes or hemophilia, we call them hemophiliacs or diabetics, and we sort of brand them individually as their disease state. And something as simple as just changing the orientation away from the functional elements of disease management to the social and emotional elements of disease management just make a huge difference in terms of how people show up and engage. And beyond that, another really important thing that Lavongo does is employ a lot of their workforce that themselves have chronic diseases and many of whom have diabetes because they know that market research reports can tell you some of the surface level stuff about how you might help people with diabetes manage their life better. But until you understand for yourself with true empathy how it's best to be engaged with and how you meet people where they are in terms of both the way you speak to them about the condition, but also the way you speak to them about managing their world inside of this condition, having that firsthand knowledge is really important. So two pieces of advice we give in this book, one, to the extent that you can hire your customers to be part of your design team, to bring a lot of that emotional relevance and experience to the design process, you absolutely must. And it's really important to understand the why behind the what. Managing your HbA1c level is not the goal that people have. Managing your HbA1c le level in order to be able to dance with your daughter at her wedding or in order to be able to go on that trek to Latin America, those are the things that get, get lost when we think about things in terms of features and benefits and not the overall emotional and social progress. It's perfect. So the advice is really the way to get better at perceiving frictions is to empathize with your customer more and see things through their eyes. Um, which, other... is, which is easier said than done. <laughs> yeah, it, it certainly is. Uh, I, I think you, you made an interesting point about entrepreneurs who are so focused on changing the world and, uh, and are sort of by their nature um, not inclined to accept the status quo, may have a hard time understanding people who are very satisfied with the status quo, even though that may be their customer. 
It's so true. I, I work, as I mentioned, a lot in healthcare and healthcare entrepreneurship, and I have a lot of healthcare entrepreneurs come to me and pitch an idea for a new piece of software that will help in the clinic or a new device that will help physicians practice medicine better. And I'll say, wow, this is really cool. Like, what's it going to take for this to be adopted into the clinic? And the answer is usually some version of, well, it's just going to take doctors and nurses completely changing the way they practice medicine. I'm like, <laughs> and in what parallel universe do you think that that's going to happen? Like somebody who's trained in something for 25 or 30 years is just going to drop the way they've been doing things because you show up with this shiny new object. It's a little, uh, it's a little naive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you can't keep a good entrepreneur down. They are, uh, 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 their reach should exceed their grasp, right? Um, well, I, I wonder, David, if you could join me in applying friction theory to some of the problems that we all face in this country right now, some well-known problems, and just uh, look at how friction theory applies. If, if, I, if I could, let me start with one that is in the news a lot lately these days, which is uh, vaccine hesitancy. So, you know, as well as I do, that even in states with high vaccine uptake, still under two-thirds of the people are vaccinated, and it's much lower in many states with high hesitancy or resistance. Um, what would it take for public health authorities to eliminate that resistance that puts so many people at danger? Yeah. Um, so, obviously, very topical. And uh, of the four frictions that we were just talking about, inertia, effort, emotion, and reactance, this really falls, well, it covers all, all four, to be honest. Wow. But most specifically, I think based on the way the question was asked, it's really around reactance, people's aversion to being changed by others. And maybe the way I'll, I'll offer an idea or an answer is not so much about what to do, but maybe a little bit about what not to do, which is exactly wow. what, what most of us think is the right thing, which is to give people a lot of evidence right? To overwhelm them with facts. Let me show you the data. Let me show you more data. Let me show you all of the longitudinal studies that support this. And what we know when it comes to reactance, because reactance is really, it's not a data-based friction. It's not that you haven't shown me enough information. And therefore, once you show me enough information, I will finally tip over to viewing the world that you view, the way you view it. It's people feeling like change is being imposed upon them. And so oftentimes our instincts of sharing more data is the opposite of what we should do, because all that does is imply a stronger force of changing others. So sometimes the strongest data can actually be the least helpful in terms of convincing somebody who feels like change is being imposed upon them. Instead, what we would recommend is try to find ways for people to create self-generated arguments and it's less about telling them what to do, and it's more about engaging them in conversation about what they think they might want to do. And mm -hmm. so we talk less about putting ideas onto people or blinding them with science or facts, and more about engaging them in conversations by asking them yes questions, by allowing them to kind of co-design an approach for themselves that might be more palatable, and it feels like it's a decision that they're making on their own behalf, versus a decision that somebody is making for them, which is where people dig in, no matter how good the evidence and no matter how good the data is. So in summary, I would say our instincts about more data, more facts often works against us. Um, is there an advantage to, um, uh, it's the, I, from uh, Cialdini's book about influence, the, um, I guess the testimonial argument. So someone who um, was sick, 
and now wishes they were vaccinated and and using that example to uh, to a, a vaccine hesitant person. Yeah. I mean, social proof is definitely a big part of this, but even a, a slight twist on this is less about here's somebody you don't know who wishes they were mm -hmm. vaccinated. Now you ought to be. I'm sure to some extent that creates a little bit of emotional tug. But what might even be better is for you to say, have you ever had an experience with a loved one that has suffered from a contractable disease that you wish was preventable? And mm. having nothing to do with COVID, like, do you know anybody mm. that has contracted something that materially impacted their their way of life? And do you ever wish that there was something that they could have done differently or the world could have done differently to prevent that from happening? Tell me a little bit about that. And now you're moving away from COVID, but you're talking about an experience that's relevant and important for them. And usually when you start that way, it opens them up to the idea of having a dialogue. And then naturally you can say, well, we're, we're sort of finding ourselves in a similar situation. And if you were giving advice to other people, what advice would you give about being adherent to or being respectful or mindful of public health guidance? Because that's exactly the situation we're in today. And it disarms them because it's less about the topic at hand and more about something that actually means something to them. Uh-huh. All right, good. Very shrewd. Well, let's, let's pivot from public health to, you know, corporate life. Um, sure. I, I can tell you about, uh, you know, one issue that a lot of companies face uh, in this era in which a lot of, um, especially exacerbated by COVID, in which a lot of people bring their own technology. And you end up with a tech stack at a company in which, you know, every department has its own collaboration software or its own communication software. And ideally, what you would like to do as a leader is, is unify everyone on a single platform. Um, obvious friction costs there. How would you, how would you, if you were a leader trying to move people along in that way, what would your advice be there? Yeah. Um, sort of ironic, right? That, that collaboration software makes us less collaborative uh, <laughs> in many respects. So um, one of the first thoughts that come to mind hearing that question is the importance of co-design. So this is something we talk a lot about in the world of design thinking, but is also a really mm -hmm. powerful device for change. And again, this feels a like it, it, it has a, a place in reactance, which is if I'm in love with my collaboration software, I'm not really interested in hearing what your collaboration software has to say because I'm already anchored in my own uh, experience. Mm -hmm. So it's both reactance plus inertia, right? People get used to doing the things they want to do. In two ways that we can address both of these things, A, for reactants, if people feel like there's an opportunity to come to the table and co-design a solution together, feel like their fingerprints are involved, and whether we use everybody's suggestions or we don't, for them to feel like they've got a seat and a voice in the design process and that their desires and interests are heard, simply feeling like you have some inventorship in the strategy, even if it's not your piece of software that gets adopted going forward, having a seat at the table and having your voice heard is really important for overcoming some of that initial resistance. So we use this a lot when we're designing uh, uh, collaborations between universities to support entrepreneurs or collaborations between companies who may be competitive organizations, but trying to align them around a common goal. This process of co-design really disarms a lot of that mm -hmm. initial uh, bias and, and helps people move past it towards progress. The second, when it comes to inertia, one of the things that tends to make people resistant to new ideas is just simply the unfamiliarity of the idea itself. 
And sometimes the way to get people on board with a new idea is to make something that even though it's technologically whizzy and even though it's got all these features and benefits and can do lots of stuff, sometimes making an unfamiliar thing feel more familiar is the key to getting people to adopt it into their lives. So a software example that reinforces this and people talk about Steve Jobs and Wozniak all the time, but I think they did a really beautiful job in the early days of Apple when they were designing the OS, even though computers could do all sorts of things that the analog world couldn't and created all sorts of efficiencies and, and benefits that the analog world couldn't, they were still mindful of knowing that in order to activate a bunch of people to get on board with computing that otherwise wouldn't consider computing in their personal future is to make the unfamiliar idea more familiar by doing things like calling a word, uh, a document you create in their software, a document, which is stored in a folder, which is placed on a desktop. And if you wanted to get rid of that document, you would throw it in the trash can. So even though the machine itself is in incredibly powerful and can do all sorts of interesting stuff, warming people up by making these unfamiliar concepts feel more familiar is one of the keys to overcoming this force and friction of inertia. All right, great. Um, how does friction theory um, uh, spill over into your teaching of entrepreneurship at, at Kellogg? Um, I you know, I would, I, I would think that um, uh, for a lot of um, for a lot of young entrepreneurs, um, probably one of the biggest things you want to get across is how much friction there is out there. Um, like, think of uh, a number of starry-eyed entrepreneurs who have crossed our radar screen at Inc. and Fast Company, who don't really have a a, a clear idea of the risks they're taking or the odds of success. Um, and they might be happier if they did. Uh, yeah, so there's a few different frameworks and tools that we highlight in this book. Uh, one is called a friction map, and we're starting to introduce mm -hmm. that into the way that we teach at Kellogg. And it's not so much to say, here's all the friction, now get spooked and go a different direction. But the more that we can front load their awareness of all of the things that will stifle their efforts as they move along, the more they mm -hmm. can begin to prototype solutions to those and even build those into how they introduce their ideas into the market. So we're asking our entrepreneurs to use a friction map and to say, all right, what are the forces of inertia that might stand in my way? What are the forces of effort? What are the forces of emotion? What are the forces of reactance? Let's hypothesize about what those might be. And then let's do some testing and and prototyping to find out how we might overcome those if those things are in fact present. I don't think there's ever the possibility of fully removing friction, but the earlier you're aware of it, the more you can build it into your plans. I think the problem becomes once you build a custom furniture business and spend a lot of money recruiting people to your website and hoping they convert, after you've made that kind of investment, you sit back and scratch your head and say, why aren't the people actually doing what they told us they would do in market research? Then friction becomes a very expensive problem. So the earlier that you can forecast it and build it into your uh, venture building process or your design process, the less expensive and the smoother the process will be. Okay, all right. Um, so the, the, the growth of entrepreneurial academic studies, I suppose, um, has exploded in recent years as entrepreneurship has become a desirable career path for a lot of young people, uh, and particularly people going through business school, um, as opposed to the 
previous default choice of Wall Street or um, McKinsey. Um, mm. What is your, you know, what's your opinion about that? What advice would you give to people who are thinking about starting out on that path? Yeah. Um, so going back to this point, we talked about the why behind the what. I think mm -hmm. a lot of students aspire to be entrepreneurs, but when you break it down to why they want to be entrepreneurs, you get to principles like autonomy and creativity and flexibility. And what we're attempting to do at Kellogg is try to make people more self-aware about why they feel entrepreneurship is for them. And once they highlight those attributes, autonomy, flexibility, creativity, uh, we can show them a variety of paths one of which very much might be startup entrepreneurship, but there's also acquisition entrepreneurship and there's owning franchises. There's lots of ways students can become, young people can become entrepreneurs, but startups get the outsized amount of our attention because that's where a lot of the sizzle is. But if we can understand the DNA of that individual entrepreneurial student, not only can we help make them a little bit more self-aware about what their path should be, but also make them aware about how there's a variety of different paths through entrepreneurship. And maybe it's not startups, maybe it's acquisition, or maybe it's being an early joiner of a small business. But uh, I think one of the mistakes schools in general, and I think historically we have even made, is assuming that people are determined to become entrepreneurs simply for the idea of being an entrepreneur. But when we've broken it down into its component parts and understand their motivations better, we can now offer them different paths and paths that are more suited to their specific goals and ambitions and, frankly, their tolerance for risk. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's great. That is, I'm, I'm very glad to hear that. Um, I think that perhaps um, not everyone is cut out to be an entrepreneur, although that is a, uh, a topic of debate among Inc. 5000 honorees, whether entrepreneurship can be taught or whether it is a, a sort of an inbred characteristic. I think I know that you fall on the uh, it can be taught end of the spectrum, but uh, is there a profile of students at Kellogg that uh, you would say are sort of particularly well suited and, you know, have the right stuff for success in entrepreneurship? Yeah. Yes. Uh, I mean, there's no perfect rubric, but the things that we screen for, particularly for startup entrepreneurs, are are they problem focused or are they product focused? The product focused entrepreneurs, the one that have an idea for a thing uh, to solve a problem. But if that thing fails, they sort of get a little bit disoriented about what they might do next. Those are the ones that struggle because invariably the world is going to throw a bunch of problems or friction in their way that's going to make it difficult to bring this thing out into the world. And if they're not resolute in their determination to solve a particular problem, uh, the moment they encounter a little headwind or friction, they'll typically rethink whether or not this is the path for them. The ones that have a particular passion for solving a problem will be much more determined to find a way to do it, even if the original product or service is not the thing that wins the day. So finding somebody that's problem-oriented versus product-oriented, people that show humility and coachability, people that have a skill at reframing opportunities, not I'm going to do this, but do it better. I'm going to look at this differently than my other competitors might look at it. I'm going to go left when they go right. And finally, the ones that are evidence-led the ones that are willing to design experiments in science, sometimes we call it the killer experiment, uh, being determined early to try to prove their assumptions wrong so they've got a better mm. chance of getting the ones that are true to market. Uh, people that are willing to 
find out that they're wrong. In fact, eager to find out that they're wrong so they can get on with the business of being right. I think those are the attributes we screen for most importantly. That's a great answer. Um, let's talk about Chicago, where you are deeply embedded in the entrepreneurial ecosystem. And uh, Chicago does have a vibrant scene, but it's not mentioned in the same breath as uh, Boston or Austin or New York, let alone the Bay Area. What does it need? What does Chicago need to be uh, in that top tier of, of entrepreneurial uh, hubs? Well, I think we just need to wait for everybody else's cost of living to skyrocket and then by default will be a great <laughs> choice. Uh, no, uh, seriously, Chicago, I think, suffers from not necessarily being specialists in anything. I think there are uh, associations that people make that if I'm in tech, I ought to be in the Bay, or if I'm in mm -hmm. life sciences, I ought to be in Cambridge, or if I'm in uh, consumer, I ought to be in Austin. And I think they've developed these centers of gravity around these functional areas of specialty. I think Chicago, in some ways, what has stopped us from having one of those reputations is actually our greatest asset, which is how multidisciplinary we are. So mm -hmm. we have great uh, ecosystems to support healthcare entrepreneurship matter. One of the, uh, the incubator that I founded uh, is one of those, as well as a bunch of others that have popped up since. We've got food incubators and CPG incubators and real estate uh, venture funds, but we're, we're, we're more generalist in our orientation to entrepreneurship than specialist. And I think because of that, we're not often mentioned in the same sentence as some of these other geographies around the country. But I will say one of the things that Chicago does have going for itself is a huge center of gravity for large Fortune 500 and Fortune 1000 companies. And so for entrepreneurs who view partnership with larger companies as a necessity on their path to commercialization, Chicago is a fantastic place to be. Uh, and so if we're known for anything, in addition to the multidisciplinarity of what we do, I would also hope that being a great partner to help accelerate something's path to market through partnerships is a place that I hope people associate us with that going forward. Okay. Um, let me and our lack of seismic okay. activity and wildfires and ample fresh water. And, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think you're highlighting the frictions of some of those other places. <laughs> yes. I, I would, uh, let me close with a question that uh, uh, you've answered uh, uh, a, a little bit before, but but um, take it from a different kind of focus. So you talked about the attributes that you like to see as um, promising and an aspiring entrepreneur. Uh, just taking a, a, a student or an aspiring entrepreneur that you that you don't know, um, is there one piece of advice that you would give them that would make the journey that they're about to embark on um, a little bit smoother? Uh, excellent question. I think know thyself. Really stop and ask yourself why, and not just because you want to be an entrepreneur, but what is it about being, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the five whys, right? The research technique for understanding the underlying root cause of something that the, the true reasons people do things are never at the surface. They're always three or four levels below. I think doing that with yourself. Why do I want to be an entrepreneur? Because I want autonomy. Why do I want autonomy? Because I've got a variety of interests and I don't want to be accountable to one single organization. And if you can get yourself three or four levels of why down, 
I don't think it necessarily dissuades you from being an entrepreneur, but it probably gives you greater clarity about what you ought to do on your entrepreneurial path. And I think that when you do that, when students do that, they're often surprised by how many different paths emerge uh, rather than the path that they've attached themselves to just off the cuff. That is a great answer and a great place to leave it. Ask yourself why repeatedly. <laughs> David Schoenthal, thank you very much for being on The Human Factor. This has been a great conversation. Thanks, Eric. It was great to be here. That's all for this episode of The Human Factor. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen so you don't miss the next episode. The Human Factor is produced by Joshua Christensen with help from Blake Odom. Thank you.